For many of us, the New Year's resolution has already been broke a couple of times. For some of us, well, we're still struggling. How to find hope and help for those New Year's resolutions, charting a course forward into the year 2016 to the glory of God. Let's talk about that next here on Graceful Truth. And again, from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City, hi, welcome to our program. This is Graceful Truth with our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse. Today, we continue with our series called New Beginnings, looking forward to the new year, seeking God's help and guidance to chart a course in a life and manner that glorifies Him and brings Him ultimate glory. Join us for a look at New Beginnings. Once again, here's Pastor Steve Converse with today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. the power of Christ's resurrection transformed Thomas. The knowledge that Jesus is alive and that he has conquered the grave once and for all. When you come to know that in a real personal way, it transforms anybody. It makes you a new person in Christ, the Bible says. Christ's death cancels the penalty of sin. And the power of his resurrection cancels the power of sin. And one day, when he comes back to receive us onto himself, we're going to be ushered out of here in glorified bodies, and we're going to be freed from the presence of sin. I don't know about you, but I'd be saying amen right about now. The second result of knowing him is not just Christ's resurrection power, but Christ's rejected position. Look at what it says. Not only the power of his resurrection, it says, but the fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings. What's that going to do? You know what? When we enter into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, it's going to help us. It's going to make us willing to face the sneers and the snubs of the world when our faith becomes evident before them. Do you know that Jesus had to face the animosity of his own family? Some of you are experiencing that even now. His own brothers didn't believe in him. And on one occasion, they wanted to restrain him physically. They said that he was beside himself. It's a nice way of saying lost his marbles. It's crazy. His own brothers. He also had to face the alienation of his followers. So you think everybody always followed Jesus? No, they didn't. Was he popular? Yeah, for a while. But the Bible says in John 6, verse 66, that after his teaching on the bread of life, what we're going to talk about this morning, communion, Many of his disciples left him, it says. They just left. And as the pressure began to mount more and more against him, the Bible says more and more turned away. And you know what the Bible also says in Mark 14, 50? That in the end, all forsook him. All forsook him and fled. They ran from him. Like rats run when the light is turned on. He also had to face the accusation of his own foes. They, they slandered his birth. They charged him with being in the league of Satan. They twisted his words. They even hired false witnesses to testify against him. Isaiah 53.3 says that he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
That's our Lord and Savior. See, those were his sufferings. And the Bible says that we should be in fellowship with those, that we should share in those. And when that animosity from the family comes or the alienation from friends or the accusation of people who stand up against us come, I pray that we will take heart and those things will only draw us closer to Christ, not further away. Christ's resurrection power, his rejected position. And then thirdly, it says here that we will be made conformed unto his death. It speaks of Christ's redemptive passion. Christ's redemptive passion. We will, made, we will be made like him in death. Conformed to his death. See, the heart of the Lord Jesus looks at a lost and dying world and he yearns for that world. He, he has passion for that world to be saved. That's why he came and he died on a cross. And when we get to know him and we learn to lean on his breast as John did, we'll begin to understand something of the beating of his heart for sinful men. We, like Paul, will hopefully find our attitude towards sinners conforming to his, not a prideful arrogance that looks down our noses at them. You bad people outside the church. But rather with a Christ-like passion so we can weep as Paul wept. This is what Paul told God in Romans 9. Turn over there, Romans 9, verses 1 to 3. I just want you to see this for yourself. Romans 9, verses 1 to 3. With a passion that can only come like Christ, Paul wept and, and told God that he would be willing to go to hell if that could somehow mean that his own people, the Jewish people, would be converted. That's the passion that Paul had. Look at what it says in Romans 9, verses 1 to 3. I tell, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continue, continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren and my countrymen according to the flesh. If somehow, God, you could let me go to hell and save them, go for it. That's what he's saying. How unlike Christ we are. How unlike Paul we are. How little we know Christ I know many of us here in this room have maybe boys, girls, children, brothers, sisters, family members, close friends who are outside of Christ. They don't know Christ. They're not saved. And granted, occasionally we may mention their names briefly in a prayer for salvation. But where's the passion? Where's the agony? Where's the total sacrifice of pleasure? of the creature comforts, of time and sleep as we fast and pray for their salvation. Where is it? Beloved, this last week I've been looking at that in my own life and I'll, I'll be real honest with you, it's not there. It's not there. Shamefully. Hebrews 5, 7 speaks of strong crying and tears, the poured out anguish, the pains of Calvary. Where is that? If we're to be in the fellowship of his sufferings, we need to stop and we need to check our attitudes. Do we have the redemptive passion that Christ has for those who are lost? We have to stop and remember that Christ died for those lost people. That he went to the cross for them. That he was made conformable to death for them. And if we knew him and were made conformed to his death, that we would not rest. We would not count any sacrifice too great. 
that we would become partakers of the passion until they forsook their sinful ways and came to Christ to know him too? Would it be in 2010 that we would renew our passion for those who have yet to be saved? There's also a perspective gain here that he says in verse 11. He says, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, if by any means... In the New Testament, usually this term translated resurrection of the dead is anastasis necron, which refers both to the resurrection to life for those who are saved, but it also refers to the resurrection to judgment for those that are lost. It could mean you're saved or lost. Both are going to be resurrected, one to salvation, one to hell. Here, however, Paul, it's interesting in Philippians, instead of just using that Greek word, Anastasis, he puts a little preposition in front of it, ek, E-K. And he forms the word anastasis, which means basically out from. There's another word that means away from in the Greek, A-P-O, apo. But if you were to describe the difference between those two words, ek and apo, apo would mean you had a circle, draw a circle, and then you have a line just touching the circumference of the circle and you draw it outwards. That means it's going away from the circle. But the word ek means that that line penetrates deep within the circle and it comes from within the circle to the outward regions of the circle. So the literal meaning of ex anastasis or out of the resurrection, that's what it means, out resurrection. It's a resurrection from the dead, but it's distinguished from just the resurrection from the dead. And this is the only place that he uses this word. The only place. What does he mean by out-resurrection? What could he possibly mean? Maybe Paul envisioned a group of people who will have a special position in the resurrection of the dead. Even of those who are going to be saved, they're all going to be resurrected from the dead. But I think Paul envisioned himself attaining to something even beyond that. A special group of those who are being resurrected. A privileged group, those who are going to be set apart, who will have attained a special place of status. We use the word, oh, that they have arrived. That Greek word translated attain there is just that. It's used in Acts chapter 16, verse 1. It says of Paul, Luke writes, Then came he to Derbe and Lystra. That word came is the same word, he attained. He, he arrived at Derbe and Lystra. So when Paul wrote these words to the Philippians, he was not sure yet that he had arrived at the out-resurrection. He was for sure going to be part of the resurrection, but he even had a goal beyond that. Later in 2 Timothy 4.7, it seems that he was sure that he attained that coveted position. For he writes in 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the good fight. I have what? Finished the race. I have what? Kept the faith. So Philippians, he's still running. He's still attaining. He's, he's still trying to, to reach that point. But at the end of his life, he says, no, I've, I've done the best I can do. And with Christ's grace and with Christ's help, I did it. So there's a way that we can know Christ in a deeper way. Some people say, well, if you're saved, you're saved, right? There's no, no, I think we can know Christ even more. You may be saved from hell. You may be in heaven one day. But the Bible clearly says that we can work on our sanctification here on earth, that we can become more and more like him each and every day. And that's what Paul's desire was. You never arrive here while you're here on earth. Do you understand that? 
Some of you who are older, who've known the Lord for years, probably even long, older than I am, you've known the Lord that many years, 50 years. You've been walking with Christ all those years. Don't you ever sit there and think, oh, okay, well, I've done it all. I've, I've, I've arrived. I can't learn anything else. There's nothing else that God can change in my life because I'm 80 years old and, and I've been a Christian all my life for most of my life and, and you know, I, I, God can't do anything new in my life. Don't you ever believe that lie. Every day that we wake up, that we take that first breath of fresh air in the morning, hopefully God is doing something fresh and new in your work, if, in your life. If he's not, there's something wrong. And that was Paul's attitude. Well, we've looked at, at his past glory, his present gains, and just quickly look at his goals. He assesses his situation in verse 12, and he does so realistically. Not as though I've already attained... Either were already perfected. Stop and think with me just for a second of Paul's career up to this point. Think of Paul's career up to this point. Within a few weeks of being converted to Christ, he had made such an impact on Damascus that he stirred up, stirred up the opposition that he was forced to leave the city. He went to Arabia where he thought through the Old Testament revelation in light of the cross of Christ, and he formulated the essence of the New Testament doctrine, and he actually coined many of the words and expressions that we even use today in Christian theology. And while waiting for God to work in his life and show him what he wanted him to do, he evangelized Arabia, Tarsus, and Cilicia. Then he moved over to Syrian Antioch at the urging of Barnabas. And the apostle made a great impact on that wicked city. Is he done yet? Not even. Paul evangelized the island of Cyprus. He founded a string of churches in Galatia at Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, and then later in northern Galatia. He championed the cause of Christian liberty, and he helped the elders of the Jerusalem church understand that Gentiles didn't have to become a Jew in order to become Christians. The monumental achievement that freed the early church of all the shackles of Judaistic legalism. He pioneered the work in Europe and he planted thriving churches in Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, Corinth. He made that memorable speech on Mars Hill before all the intellectuals of the world as they gathered there. The Bible says that he evangelized Ephesus and left behind a church that would just churn out other planted churches in Western Asia Minor. And after traveling and preaching and teaching and exhorting, Paul arrived at Rome as a prisoner. And even there, while he lived in constant peril of death, the Bible says that he was continually winning con uh, converts in the ranks of the Imperial Guard and extending the cause of Christ even into Caesar's household, in Caesar's palace. In his years, Paul influenced many scores of men to follow his example and to follow Christ, who gave themselves to evangelizing, pastoring, teaching, Timothy, Titus, Luke, Silas, Aristarchus, Gaius, Tychicus, Trophimus. The apostle himself, the Bible says, had performed miracles, healing the lame, casting out demons, banishing fever, curing the sick, even raising the dead. He also suffered great hardships, but he did so with joy in his heart, with a song on his lips. 
The Bible says that he had been beaten. He had been scourged. He was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned. He was stoned. He was mobbed. He was castigated. And he was even mocked. And yet through all that, at the end of all that, Paul writes these words. Not as though I had already attained. Either were already perfect. In other words, Christ isn't done with me yet. Can you believe that? took me five minutes to quickly tell you what Paul did. Most of us, if we went through that, we would think that we had arrived. Not Paul. He also assessed his situation resolutely. It says in verse 12, I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. And he borrows here the language in this, this chapter of an athlete. Paul's saying, you know what? I'm pressing on. I am going to press on, and I want to seize that for which I have been seized hold of Christ. That word there translated follow after, press on, it's the same word trans translated in Philippians 3, 6 when he talks about persecuting. Same word. He had the same passion as a religious Jew in persecuting the church. Now he's a converted Jew, he's a Christian, and he has that same passion in taking Christ to the uttermost parts of the world. That same commitment drove Paul to stamp out Christianity. Now, it has him planting it everywhere. But look at what he says in verse 13. He says, I count not myself to have apprehended. He stops. And he wrote this letter, and letter after letter, he speaks of spiritual truth. And the most exalted views of Christ are from the pen of Paul. He's given us the dynamics of Christian living and Christian growth. And yet the apostle was saying, I don't think that I have grasped yet all there is to grasp. I haven't arrived yet. We come to the end here, and it speaks of a fresh start. He says, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. He stops and he assesses everything that he's done. And he says, you know what? That's not good enough. I'm going to start over. That's his plan. He's saying the past was the past. Yeah, God used that graciously and wondrously and people's lives were touched. That's great. Thank God for that. But you know what? That's in the past. See, some of us in our Christian lives, we live in the past. We go back to the day we came to Christ and we think of all the excitement and all the joy and all the sin that was stripped away from our lives. Well, we went to this conference. We went there. We went to this youth camp. Oh, that was so great. God spoke to my heart. We're living in the past. Even as a church, we can live in the past, beloved. Oh, what a wonderful prophecy conference we had last fall. Oh, boy, wasn't that great? It's the past. Praise God for it, but it's the past. Personally, I'm not interested in the past. I'm interested in what God's going to do in 2010. Not only in this church, but in my life, in your life. In our community. That's what Paul did. Paul had touched two continents for Christ. But he probably scratched his head and said, what about Africa? What about the continents that haven't even been discovered yet? There's got to be people there. Paul had reached Rome and now he wanted to go to Spain. What about the regions where Rome's proud eagles never even touched? Who was going to take the gospel to the islands of Britain? Or to the Scots? Weren't all these places part of the Great Commission? To Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles? See, the task 
in Paul's mind, was quite unfinished. In Paul's mind, it had barely even begun. Paul decided purposely that there was only one thing to do and begin as though nothing at all had been done. His new plan was to put the past resolutely behind him and set his sights on new targets ahead. And see, in stating his objectives, here's what he said. This one thing I do. Underline that in your Bible. This one thing I do. D.L. Moody, who was probably as busy a man as Paul when it comes to the work of Christ, he said this on occasion. He said, it's better to say, this one thing I do, than to say, these 40 things I dabble with. That's a good point. I think Paul would agree with that. See, Paul concentrated all his energy on the one goal that he had set for himself, that he would know Christ in a more intimate way. Nothing could distract him. Why did he do that? It speaks of the prize. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. See, throughout his entire life, throughout his entire ministry, and throughout this book, we have the language of an athlete. And we see Paul as a man running a race. And his head is thrust forward. His expression is set fiercely on the determined goal, the finish line. Every nerve in his body is tense. His breath is gasping for air. And the whole being is stretched to the utmost to finish well. Every last ounce of energy, every last bit of willpower, he's putting, just throwing it out there. He's spending it to win the prize. What's the prize? It says the high calling of God. Paul wanted to be way out in front as a winner. He wasn't satisfied just to go along with the pack. He wanted to be in the out-resurrection. He wanted to be one of those who was called out from the rank and file and those ascending on high. He wanted that prize with every fiber of his being, and he knew the only way to get that was through Christ. That led to his uncompromising dedication, the motivation that pushed Paul to be committed to him until the end. See, it was the master, the Lord Jesus Christ, that led and directed him. It wasn't a map that he held in his hands as he tried to evangelize the, the worlds in which he came in contact with. It was the master. I ask you this morning, is the master's hand evident in your life? Are you embracing all that this new year holds for us? Are you trying with all your being to pursue Christ, to know him? Are you asking God to do a fresh work in your life, unsatisfied with what was done in 2009? But looking ahead, what is God going to do in my life? That's why you got that envelope. That's why you got that card. Write down three spiritual goals that you have for 2010. And as you write it down and as you put it in the envelope and you address it to yourself, later on in the year, you'll find this in your mailbox one day. And you're going to be confronted with the commitment that you made to God on January 3rd, 2010. And how many months have passed? And have you even thought about these commitments? Have you seen God work in your life in a new way? Or is it just business as usual? I pray you'll participate in this. You don't have to do it today. You can turn these in through the month of January. 
I pray that you would do it prayerfully. But let's start off on the right foot. Let's have a new beginning. Let's, let's take our mulligan and start fresh as an individual, as a church, and ask God to do a fresh work in and through us. The Lord knows our area needs a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. And I pray that you'll get excited about what God's going to do in 2010. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.